Our scripture for meditation this morning is taken from the book of Daniel, chapter 1, the entire chapter, page 1369 in your pew Bible.
Would you stand with us as we begin our morning with worship and prayer? <clears throat> Brandon, may I ask you to lead us with prayer? Amen. Amen. Will you take your brown hymnal this morning and turn to number one? <clears throat> number one in the brown. Joyful. 
Our scripture reading for this morning is taken from the book of Romans, chapter 13, verses 1 through 6, page 1764 in the Pew Bible. And when you arrive to that, please stand with us. <clears throat> 13. Okay, Romans 13, starting at verse 1. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and he will commend you. For he is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an angel of wrath, to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also because of conscience. <clears throat> this is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing, governing. Ask that the Lord would bless his word. Will you take the red hymnal and turn to 165? I know it says the brown in the, the, the version that we know I think is in the red. 165 in the red. One six five in the red.
Our scripture this morning is Romans 13. Our last message in this series on living faith dealt with the characters of Hebrews 11 as our model. We discovered the spiritual notaries of that past time lived their day-to-day lives by faith. That is to say, they did not just trust God for the big biggies, but the the event that's there in the text. They live their whole lives trusting in God. We learn that faith is for far more than just the beginning of the Christian life. You always have to start somewhere, but once we're in the faith, we continue to live by faith. We dealt with the definitions of faith, wrong definitions. That faith is simply an enabler to help you achieve in life with God what you could not do without him. That's basically Schuller's position out of California. The second error, faith in faith. <laughs> That's fightism. It's not biblical. You hear people say this all the time. Well, just have a little faith. (laughs) In what? That's the question you should ask. Faith in themselves. Faith in their abilities. Faith in the guy they're talking to. Faith in the government. Faith has to have an object. As far as the scripture is concerned, Our faith is to be in God. The object of our faith is always God. And we learn that faith is rational. It is reasonable to believe in the God of the scriptures. We looked at two sources of knowledge and faith. One is revelation, that is, God just tells us. That's a freebie. You don't have to work at it. He just comes right out and says, this is the way it is. The second way is through investigation. We compare Scripture with Scripture. We search the various words we find in Scripture, the various uh, illustrations and so forth, and the knowledge of, of that search and research is like any other research that you would do. The idea of researching is to find knowledge, to get the information you need to complete a project or what have you. Today we turn our attention to what it means to be a faithful citizen under a government that might be hostile to your faith. And by the way, those governments are found all over our world. Let's pray.
Father, thank you for your word and thank you for the ability to study it. I'm so grateful that you you speak on every theme that we need to hear about. And you don't bypass certain things just because it's hard to hear. But you tell it like it is. And for that, we're, we're very grateful. It is true. Sometimes the truth hurts because it brings conviction to our souls concerning our failures and our ways in which we're not meeting uh, our obligations to trust you. But that's good, too. That's good for our souls, that we have the spotlight of the Word of God shine on those areas where we need to repent and recover. The whole subject of non-compliance to government regulations has become a very hot topic. And Lord, we're asking for your grace to sort through it. In Christ's name, amen. Much of our government stands for and promotes what true Christians oppose. That's true basically of all human governments. Do you remember the COVID max vaccine thing? Government says, you will get your vaccine. People that were in the armed services Protesting didn't do them any good. You're in the service of the army. You're going to get a shot whether you like it or not. People went out and walked on the streets, did all kinds of protests, and they came up with the slogan, my body, my choice. My body, my choice. In other words, government, stay out of my personal life. Don't tell me that you have authority to stick me with a needle and insert into my body a chemical substance that has not been proven and may or may not help. In fact, it may do much harm. Just let me ask something. How many of you got your shot when the government did that? George and Sheila? over here. How many did not? I'm among the did nots. <laughs> it's your choice. You can do what you want. But for the government to say that you must have that, you must do this, is overstepping their authority. Everything from pro-abortion to the spending initiatives among our country towards back bankruptcy, to global warming, to a move towards socialism, to disarmament, to acceptance of Islam in schools when Christianity is outlawed in schools. These things and many others are a cause of great concern to thinking Christians. We read in our text Paul's injunction 
Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. Everyone must submit to the governing authorities. I have a question. Is the authority absolute? That is, may government do as it wills, assuming that the sanction of God is upon it. Does the citizen have no right to assess government to be just or tyrannical? Is government free from the rule of God? Where does morality come into our submission? And what is the role of conscience to government authority? The answers to these questions are not easy. The issues are complex. They involve deep contemplation and comparing Scripture with Scripture, as well as an analysis of biblical examples. Some have refused to do this, and so their conclusion is very simplistic. They will say something like this. Yes, we are to obey the governing authorities in any and all circumstances. Paul said it, I believe it, period, end of discussion. But if this is the only conclusion, then we run into grave difficulty in some of the biblical examples, including our Lord, who defied the idea of government having absolute authority. And what about Daniel that we read this morning? And his companions, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. When they were instructed by the government that they must eat certain food, or again, when Nebuchadnezzar put his image up on the plains, that they had to go out and worship that. So you see, it's not as easy a decision that you might think because violation of the rule government puts out there may cost you something. You may end up in prison. You may have your house confiscated. This happens in all places around the world. So that's why we want to talk today about the whole idea of a living faith and citizenship. How's these two work together? There are some irrefutable truths. Number one, God alone is the sovereign ruler or governor of all people. That's where we start. You cannot read verse 1 and not see this. Paul boxes us in to but one conclusion, and that is both negatively and positively 
There is no, I'm quoting Paul, there is no authority that exists that can claim exemption of God's appointment. And again, every existing authority without exception exists because of God's appointment. Verse 1, verse 2. That's the sweeping statement. No authority exists that can claim exemption from God's appointment. God appointed them all. And that being the case, the loyalty and responsibility is to God, not anyone else. And the universal sweep of these statements is mind-boggling. No authority exists. The authorities that exist, God has established. That tells me that we do not get to pick and choose. We do not get to say, those governments which promote morality and kindness and peace, those are of God. But those which are immoral and hostile and evil, they're not of God. When Paul wrote Romans 13, guess what? Nero was the emperor of Rome. The same emperor who would later order Paul's beheading for promoting the gospel in the Roman Empire. Paul, you sure you want to say that all authorities that are around the earth are ordained by God? You know that guy at Rome? He's going to be after your head someday. We could add some other nasties. Mussolini, Stalin, Hitler. Saddam Hussein, Mao Zedong, host of modern tyrants who had no qualms whatsoever about butchering their own people in their lust for blood and totalitarian power. And they joined the ranks of the biblical examples of Pharaoh and Nebuchadnezzar and Xerxes, who was a Persian, Herod and Pilate. All of those rulers were anti-God and anti-Christians. Apart from inspiration, the fact that Paul would write such a sweeping statement of compliance to government authority indicates how seriously you and I must accept the concept that God is sovereign in establishing the governings under which you and I are citizens. Got to put it together. This is irrefutable. You cannot mitigate this. You cannot sidestep this. You cannot ignore this. Any decision you make as a citizen of the USA has to remember this. You don't like the president? Too bad. God appointed him. You don't like your congressman? Too bad. 
he or she has been ordained by God. You say, I thought we, I thought we citizens pulled a lever at a machine and voted for this person or that person, and that's how they got in office. Well, that's the mechanics of it. The ordination of it is from God. Who pulled the lever? And how many times was it pulled? And put that person in office. So we are brought to this implication. And Paul says it, verse 1. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities. Wow, that's a mouthful. We're under obligation to God, as well as to men, to acquiesce to those people God has placed over us. And anything less would be anarchy. Which is a stated reason in this text as to why God has established government. Look at verse 3 and 4. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what's right, and he will commend you. For he is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath, to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Romans 13, verse 3 and 4. In other words, he carries the sword of execution for those that are wicked. So do what's right. You mean God puts us under the authority of, let's just come right out and say it, non-Christians? They're going to decide our fate? Whether we live or die? Whether our views, our philosophy are accepted or rejected? These people are going to decide that? And if we don't knuckle under to what is being taught in all these various circles in our society, we have to suffer the consequences. Government establishes and enforces civil law. You might not like some laws. I don't like certain laws. But you and I do not get to pick and choose what we will or will not obey unless and until the law of the land violates and conflicts the law of God. Oh. Now we're getting into the deep water. But even here, we are to be careful that we do not cross over into violating God's law in one area while attempting to promote it in another area. Some years back, 
with the Roe versus Wade proposal, there was in our country the murder of abortion doctors going on in the name of opposing the killing of babies through abortion. How do you justify that? Now, we're going to take care of you doctors. We're just going to kill you. Because you're killing our babies. Oh, killing, killing. Both immoral. Anarchy among the people can be and often is as wicked and devastating as a totalitarian or oppressive form of government. Mob rule resulted in the reign of terror orchestrated by Robespierre in France, who said, and I'm quoting him, terror is nothing more than justice prompt and severe and inflexible. Look out, boy. And that was the day of the guillotine. And the guillotine was used to end the lives of 30,000 people in France alone. Most of whom of those that were executed were not aristocracy, but people who posed the bloodshed of those who called themselves patriots. So this is not an easy subject. God is the supreme ruler over all people. Everyone is to submit himself to the authorities. Now, thirdly, all government has borrowed authority, not absolute authority. So well, what do you mean by that? Well, the word authority is used by Paul six times in this text, Romans. And it consists of two Greek terms. Kratos, power to rule, when it's combined with the Greek word, for people, demos, so you come up with kratos plus demos, rule or combine the words together, and you have democratic rule of the people. Combine it with the word plutos, which is the word in Greek for wealth. So that word, wealth, plus kratos. And you have a plutocracy, the rule of the wealthy. In other words, the rich call the shots. That's what happened in the French Revolution. It was not for freedom. The people were riding for equality. 
You've got more money than I have. I want some of that money for me and my family. Any issue could be brought up that people go berserk. We should recognize that power is the ability to act without any qualifiers. Could be legitimate, could be illegitimate. Power to act. We read in the newspapers all the time of a gunman going into a convenience store to rob it. He's got a gun in his hand. He has the power to make demands. But are we obligated to obey? He has power. But is it legit? He has the power to make these demands, but are we obligated to obey? Policeman also has a gun. But his power is legitimate. Sanctioned as an enforcer of the law of the land and a protector of the law-abiding citizen, Power can be seized by one who has no authority. The whole criminal element of our society is power hungry. And they don't much care about morality. So Paul repeatedly uses the word authority in our text. The Greek, as I said, is exousia. A designated power. Power not inherent in the person, him or herself, but power bestowed by the ruling authority. The real authority is who? God. And the word indicates a borrowed power with legitimacy but also with accountability to the one who gave it to you. Remember in Jesus' trial before Pilate, Pilate asked Jesus a battery of questions, but Jesus just stood there, moot, dumb, deaf, almost. Boy, that infuriated Pilate. And he railed at Jesus. Do you refuse to speak to me? You can just see the blood in his veins in his neck puffing out. Don't you realize I have power? Exousia, it's this word. I have power. Either to free you or to crucify you. John 19, verse 10. Jesus responded in the very next verse. John 19, verse 11. 
you would have no power. Exousia, same word, gives it back to Pilate. You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you, the Jews, are guilty of a greater sin. They're bucking God. Note, Jesus did not say, Pilate, you have no authority over me. He didn't say that. Instead, Jesus acknowledged Pilate's authority, but he pointed out to him that it was a borrowed authority. An authority residing in God above, and that Pilate would be held accountable for how he used that authority. The jealous and lying Jewish leaders who handed Jesus over to Pilate under false charges bore the greater sin, but Pilate was about to sin too by using his authority to condemn one to whom he had already concluded, I find no basis for a charge against him, said Pilate. Oh, okay. John 19, verse 4. Well, <laughs> if you have found no charges against him, doesn't that mean that Jesus is innocent? And, and Pilate sounds like he's innocent by your own admission. Yet we all know that Pilate washed his hands of the matter and gave in to the pressure of an angry mob. Mob rule won that day, and anarchy won that day. Pilate had the authority to do as he pleased on that occasion. He was right in saying that freedom or crucifixion lay in his hands. Could go either way. The decision he made was wrong. But his decision nonetheless, Jesus acquiesced to. So the lesson here is that Jesus was the model citizen teaching us all that in some matters, in some matters, God alone must sort it out. We, like Christ, are to bow to the providence of God as we live under men with authority over us. And they may not always treat us right in that authority. The Bible is full of examples. Remember Joseph? He was imprisoned in Potiphar's prison for two years based upon a lie. Potiphar's wife accused Joseph of molesting her. The done deal. Who's Potiphar going to believe? Really? Think about this. Is he going to believe a slave that's part of his estate? 
Hebrew slave? Or is he going to believe his wife? When the wife says, well, yeah, that slave tried to molest me. There was no justice in that. God didn't intervene to say, Potiphar, you're wrong. Your wife's lying. And it cost Joseph two years of his life in a prison. This does not mean that we fail to oppose what is evil about the ruling authority. Jesus was not silent for long. He challenged Pilate to consider his decision carefully, you remember. God was in heaven to whom he must give an account for his decision. He spoke the truth, Jesus did. This is our responsibility. It's our accountability. But our weaponry is not guns and guillotines and bombs or other instruments of death. Paul put it this way. Though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, our weapons have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 3 and that's where our warfare is. If there's any sword in our hand as we go up against the world, it is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Ephesians 6, verse 7. Well, Pastor, that just ain't going to work. Because the world's going to smash us right into the ground. And you can quote Bible do them anytime you want, but they're going to do their own thing. Yeah. But they're also doing God's own thing. Let's keep that in mind. You mean God wanted Paul to be put in prison? Yeah. Two years in prison? Yep. Do we remember the riots in Portland? Chaos, riots, destruction, the problem. all in the name of alleged justice and fairness. So here's the question. State law versus God's law. Anarchy versus law and order.
Think of what our country would be like without government. We have been an emerging nation since the very beginning. At different times, lawlessness seemed to reign. Historians speak of the Wild West, by which they mean that beyond certain western borders, the rule of law seemed to be non-existent. There was no sheriff, no judge, people fended for themselves and sometimes bordered on criminal conduct in their exercise of what they called justice. Innocent people were executed simply because they were shepherds with sheep instead of ranchers with cattle. Did you know that? They're called the range wars. You can read about them. In the film Open Range, starring Kevin Costner, he plays a free grazer who comes up against a ruthless land baron who used brutal force against him and his companions to run the grazers off of public land. He had no authority to do that, but he did it anyway because he had the power to do it. That's what I'm talking about. An abuse of power. The law said that free grazing was legal in unfenced land, but this landowner didn't much care about the law. He resorted to intimidation, to brutality, even murder, and used a crooked sheriff to do his dirty work. In the final showdown, Costner and his companions take on this land baron. But Costner becomes so enraged that he plans to shoot a wounded man struggling in the dirt that he got shot, but he wasn't dead, and he's struggling to get away from the high firing that's going on. And Costner goes out with his gun, towards this guy, and he's going to kill him. And his companions stop him by force, and they say, son, don't make this something bad. We aren't murderers. If you do this, you'll be just like them. And after some resistance they prevailed what was the difference between shooting the bad guys in a gunfight and shooting a wounded bad man trying to escape death the law supported the right of the free grazers to defend themselves against assault and harm and to protect their cattle, their property, their own lives. But the law did not support them to shoot a wounded man in cold blood who was no longer a threat to them in any way. Circumstances changed. The first was an act of law and order. The second was an act of anarchy and murder. 
government is given the authority to maintain order, to promote righteousness, to punish wrongdoers, thus preventing anarchy, as we read in verse 3 and 4. But what happens? What happens when government does the reverse? See, what do you mean? What happens when government punishes the good and commends, supports the wicked? When instead of protection for the citizens, it become, the government becomes the predator against the citizens. What principle allows for citizens to do more than protest by declaring their objections or by proclaiming the truth? Oh, here's the principle. The state's authority has limitations on our compliant obedience. Say, what are you saying? I'm saying this. God trumps the state. God and his law trumps the state. And it trumps the state's authority, God does, every time. One day a group of Pharisees tried to trap Jesus with a question on taxes. Here's what they said. Uh, tell us then, uh, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Jesus replied, Show me the coin that's used for paying the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And he asked them, Whose portrait is this? And whose inscription? They answered, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. Matthew 22 verse 17 and following, and they were dumbfounded. Oh, we didn't What kind of an answer is that? It's an answer to put them in their place. It took the wind out of their sails. Paul's position is the same. Caesar has the right to exact taxes from his subjects. But only the God of heaven can command worship. Caesar's government has no right to interfere in matters of faith. Clearly, our Lord was indicating that government while having authority in certain areas of life, does not have absolute authority. It has limited authority. 
And so our compliance is measured. It's not unconditional. The principle applied is this. Let's look at some areas in which Christians must obey God over the state. Number one, in the practice of our faith. One of my favorite Old Testament histories is the account of the Hebrew dignitaries who were conscripted into Nebuchadnezzar's service upon his defeat of Jerusalem. Throughout their captivity, Daniel and his friends were repeatedly faced with the dilemma of obeying the king and his edicts or obeying God and his law. First, there was a food issue. Remember this? In which the Hebrew captives were told that they had to eat the king's food. But Daniel resolved not to despile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Daniel 1, verse 8, which I just read to you. And the context shows that Daniel had no objections to the other requirements. And we read, Then the king ordered Aspenaz, the chief of his court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defects, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, qualified to serve in the king's palace. And he was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. Daniel 1, verse 3 and 4. In all these matters, Daniel complied as a new, obedient, Babylonian subject of King Nebuchadnezzar. Oh, but on the diet... He chose to obey God over the king. And a 10-day trial proposed by Daniel ended with Daniel and his friends healthier, stronger than the pagans who ate the king's food. The Israelites were eating the food that God said they could eat, part of their diet. And at the completion of their education, we read this statement, Daniel 1, verse 20. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them, Daniel's friends, ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. Daniel 1, verse 20. Or was the diet issue? Well, it didn't end there. Next, there was the worship issue. Nebuchadnezzar issued a decree that everyone in his kingdom was to worship the golden image that he had set up of himself. This, <laughs> this guy loved himself. So he made this gigantuous statue covered in gold, set it in the plains, 
and made it a law that all of his people had to go out there and worship him in his golden image. Here was the conditions. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Well, that's rather retaliatory, don't you think? The Hebrews refused. And this so infuriated the king that he ordered the furnace to be heated seven times hotter than normal. Yet the Hebrews gave this testimony. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it. And he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But, even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. Daniel 3, 17 and 18. You know the story. Glorious outcome. God delivered these Hebrews from the fiery furnace and their garments did not even smell of smoke. And the king reversed himself saying, can you believe this? This is the king. Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and they defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Daniel 3, verse 28. That's unheard of. So there was defiance in their practice concerning their faith defiance in their diet the third incident was that Daniel's defiance of Darius edict now we have a new king the Medes had come in and defeated the Babylonians so instead of Nebuchadnezzar we now have Darius He's not much better. He's just firing out orders what's going to happen. His edict was, you are not to pray to any God but to me for 30 days. He thinks he's the God. So he commands everybody, you're going to worship me. Now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room three times a day he got down on his knees and he prayed giving thanks to his God just as he had done before Daniel 6 verse 10 and you know the outcome it's thrown into the lion's den brethren in the practice of our faith we obey God, not the state. Incidentally, 
in China where atheism is the religion of the country worshiping Christ is forbidden studying the Bible is forbidden what do we find Christian people are meeting in house churches underground worshiping God non-compliant to Mao Zedong's edicts finally in a living faith we are to proclaim our faith oh boy the apostles of Christ were commissioned by him to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the remote regions of the world. And upon Jesus' ascension, they immediately began to proclaim the gospel. But the same religious leaders who had orchestrated the crucifixion of Christ now arrested Peter and John and warned them not to preach any longer in Jesus' name. They were released. Peter and John went out into the community and refused to comply. They went right back to their preaching. We're, we're not going to obey that rule. You can't tell us not to share our faith with about God. So next, the government arrested not only Peter and John, but all the apostles couldn't find it. It's in the text. They were all arrested and they were all warned again, you are not to preach in this name, the name of Jesus. What was their response? Peter, I'm reading scripture, Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than men. Acts 5 verse 29. They were all then severely flogged, Roman flogging, and released. Yet went away, it says, rejoicing that they could suffer for Christ. And Luke tells us day after day in the temple courts from house to house, they never stop teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Acts 5, verse 42. Government really taking over here. Trying to squash the message of the gospel. And then lastly, we are to be free in the precepts of our faith. No government has the authority to compel us to violate the moral requirements of our conscience, to compel us to commit immoral or wicked deeds. 
Joseph was sold by the Midianites to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, Genesis 37-36. And unlike the German men who complied with Hitler's breeding camps to produce an Aryan race, when Potiphar's wife put the moves on Joseph, he replied, No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? Genesis 39, verse 9. And his refusal to be sexually active with Potiphar's wife cost him his position, it cost him his freedom, it landed him in Pharaoh's dungeon for more than two years. I'm sure he didn't know that was coming. I'm sure he was taken by surprise on that. When Jehoshaphat was about to make an alliance with wicked King Ahab to go against Ramoth Gilead, all of Ahab's hundred paid prophets they were all his prophets, gave him a favorable prediction. Here's what they said. Oh, you want to go up against Ahab? Go, for the Lord will give it into your into the king's hand. Only one little prophet of God, Micaiah, was then summoned by Jehoshaphat's request. And as he was being brought in to give his response, the messenger had gone, I'm reading scripture, the messenger had gone to summon Micaiah and said, Look, as one man, all the other prophets are predicting success for the king. So let your word agree with theirs and speak favorably. But Micaiah said, As surely as the Lord lives, I can tell him only what the Lord tells me. 1 Kings 22, 13 and 14. And being instructed to lie to the king, he would not do it. He told the truth, saying, the Lord has declared disaster for you, O Ahab. Verse 23. And for that he was thrown into prison where he subsisted on bread and water only. Brethren, it costs something to stand with Christ in a hostile world especially under a hostile government. You know, all these areas, the practice of our faith, the proclamation of our faith, the precepts of our faith, we must obey God rather than man, and that will mean civil disobedience at times, for which there will be consequences, yet in the end exonerated by God. 
Jesus put it this way. Whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But, but, whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my Father in heaven. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake, he will find it. He who receives you receives me. And he who receives me receives the one who sent me. And anyone who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And anyone who receives a righteous man because he is a righteous man will receive a righteous man's reward. Matthew 10, verse 32, the words of Christ. May God grant us all the discernment to tell the difference between sinful defiance of God-ordained government authority and necessary civil disobedience when government exalts itself above God by requiring us to disown our Savior or to deny our faith. So in closing, let me ask some questions. Do you have a faith that you would die for? It's an honest question. Hard one. Do you have a faith that you would die for? Do you have a love for God over love for life? Let me tell you, it's the only faith that pleases God. Let me read it for you from the last book of the Bible. Revelation 22, verse 10 and 11. Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ. For... The accuser of our brothers, Satan, has been hurled down, and they overcame him by the word of the Lamb. Victory over death. And the word of their testimony, speaking out. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Oh, I'm going to be executed. Oh, yeah, I'll tell you anything you want to know. What do you want to know? No, they didn't do any of that. Jesus put it this way. Do not fear those who kill the body. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in Matthew 10, verse 28. There's something worse than death. There is what the Bible calls the second death. What's that? Destruction of body and soul in hell. 
these truths really, uh, they dig into our souls and they really question us as to where we stand with God. So I'm asking, you know, when push comes to shove, and, and it's coming, and it's already here, when government starts to tell us what you can eat, what you can believe, where you can go, when you can worship, when you can't worship, all of these things, your faith is being put on the line every time. Are you going to be compliant? Or are you going to say with Peter, hey, we must serve God rather than man. May the Lord give us his grace. Father, thank you for your word and thank you for laying this out for us. I mean, we don't have to guess where we're supposed to be standing. You lay it out for us. We're to love you above life itself. And yes, our enemies are getting very bold in our day. And they're going to come after us in ways that we <clears throat> never thought of be, would be possible in the good old USA. But it will be possible because government itself will be anti-God and anti-Christian. And they don't want our voices leading people in opposition. Lord, help us to stand for the truth. Give us a love for truth, a love for Christ. Jesus said it best. Don't fear those that kill the body. That's nothing. Fear him that can kill both body and soul in hell. And that's forever. Bless us with the truth that Jesus died for us, not so we could desert him, not so we could disown him, Jesus died for us to show his great love towards us and that the way to stand against the evil of the day is to stand with him. We are to remember that beyond the cross there was an open tomb and the one who was crucified rose victorious, conquering death and his enemies. And it's pledged to return and come again. We look forward to that day. Till you come, make us bold and faithful. In Jesus' name, amen. Our closing hymn is from the hymnal number 74. Incidentally, I have a short meeting for the uh, officers after church. It'll be it will be short. I, I tell you, I just have to ask you a question and get a yes or no answer. That's pretty, pretty short. When you find number seventy-four, will you stand with me, please?
We thank you, Lord, for the truth of your word. Help us to be obedient to it. We remember the text in Hebrews that talks about those who died as martyrs of faith. It says they did not love their life to the point of denying Christ. We live in a world where justice is not always present. We pray that we will see that. And that with regard to us as Christians in our faith, that's often the case. We do praise you for the word of God that sets the compass for us. It directs the needle where we are to go. And if we follow it, we will be in good hands because our God has set that law in place. Bless us this day. Be with mercy. Continue to help our Lord. Help her to recover. Such a sweet attitude she has with regard to all the things that she's been through. And then the recent news is that she's had an allergic reaction to one of the medicines that she needs not to have seizures. Oh, boy. Lord, it's just one thing after another, but we ask for your sustaining grace to be sufficient. Bless her and her family, her little brother. And we ask, Lord, that you will work things through them. Help them to get through all of that. For others that are ill, we have mentioned Della. And others, we pray, Lord, that you will bless with your healing power. We who are elderly and getting even more elderly find that we're aching and paining 
the pain is there and we realize we can't do what we used to be able to do and it reminds us that death is approaching it's going to come on us one of these days but that's okay because to be absent from the body as a Christian is to be present with the Lord and that's going to be wonderful I thank you for it in Christ's name Amen short meeting with the uh, board Thank you.